Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Minute where sometimes you're the windshield and sometimes the metaphorical bug is a mess of shotgun pellets in Mad Max to the Road Warrior, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 82, which begins with the snake truck swerving off the road, and it ends with the infamous cannonball stunt. When we left off yesterday, the rig and the snake truck were having a bit of contact between the two of them as Max was trying to force them to get away. And so we start off this minute with pretty much the result of that action. There is a large piece of metal that is falling off the side of the rig and it is getting sucked very quickly underneath the tires of the snake truck. Like magic. (laughs) It disappears that quickly. I had to watch that a couple of times to figure out exactly what happened to that piece of metal because a casual viewing, it just disappears. It's Mm -hmm. just gone. And it really, it gets sucked underneath the tire and shot out backwards so fast. I imagine that piece of metal getting sucked under those tires so fast is one of the main reasons why the snake truck has to swerve so wildly and so far out. Because suddenly there's something underneath my tires that is definitely not road and I'm very worried about that and I want to preserve the structural integrity of my tires. So maybe I'll go off into some brambles because at least that's plant matter and it's not giant pieces of metal. When you put it that way, it's interesting that the driver of the snake truck was able to keep it together after actually bumping into a semi. That's not what got him. What got him was the piece of metal underneath two of his tires, (laughs) which when you really think about it, so now the tires have no friction with the road on two of the tires where the opposite tires are just fine. So yeah, that is really disconcerting and would definitely cause me, a very non-professional driver, to freak out a little probably lose control maybe overcorrect like these guys are doing absolutely overcorrect and it really does what max set out to do as far as driving them away getting them away from the truck yeah you're right it does work and it works for like the next two minutes or so Mm -hmm. they disappear for long enough and enough things happen without the snake truck that i almost forgot about them (laughs) right because For the rest of this minute, we're really concerned with a different red vehicle because on the other side of the tanker, we've got the warrior woman and she is pretty much hanging there in the barbed wire. And I'm pretty sure despite her looking around and whatnot in the previous minute, I think she's just written off as dead at this point. Yes. But that's not going to stop the mechanic from trying to retrieve her. I wish, and maybe this is something we should think about for the future, but I wish we had a doctor friend. Yeah. I wish we had somebody that we didn't mind bugging on a regular basis, like anytime anybody died, to say, hey, would this person really have died that quick of these wounds? Yeah. Because... From my limited medical knowledge, she's probably dying of internal bleeding because it didn't pierce like her heart. It was probably too low for her lungs. Although no, because she was bleeding out of her mouth, that means it pierced her lungs, right? If blood was getting into her lungs and was coming out her mouth. Possibly. Okay. Okay. I take that all back. She probably shot in the lung and she suffocated. She could also be shot 
in the stomach, which I hear is really painful. Yes. If you get shot in the stomach and it pierces that digestive lining. Right. Because your stomach acid is some seriously nasty stuff. Right. But that would also take a little bit of time, I think. Yeah. It's not as quick a death as it looks like. Her status at this point is probably deeply in shock. Definitely. Which means she's probably losing consciousness. She hits that barbed wire. We see her look around a little bit. But really, I think that's it just because her body's like, hey, this is a bad situation. Go to sleep for a while so we can work on it. Right. Which explains why she's not doing anything to try and improve her situation. And it's really just all on the mechanic. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know why. I still he's get doing uncomfortable this. watching this. It you're right. It is a very uncomfortable scene, especially we move down the road, literally, a few seconds, and there's a bad cop pulling her the other way. And the bad cop and the mechanic are like fighting over her. And it's really quite disturbing. Right, because she's There's, essentially a dead body at Yeah, this they're point. like tugging back and forth on a dead body. And even aside from the disturbing ideas surrounding that, why are they both of them, why are they expending so much energy on a dead body? Mm -hmm. Just let her hang there. I have a theory. Sure. I'm willing to bet that the mechanic is pulling on Virginia's arm or leg or whatever he's got his hands on because he wants to make sure that wherever they're going, that they can give her a proper burial or at least send her off in a more noble way than just going out the way Zeta did as Road Rash. And so he wants to bring her back up to the top of the tanker and just prop her up somewhere so that they can maybe fix her up later, maybe just bury her with more respect. The bad cop, I think he's trying to pull her off the tanker because he doesn't know if she's fully dead yet. He's looking at it from the point of view of, this is one of my enemy combatants, and if they have any consciousness left, they could cause us trouble, so I'm just going to eliminate them completely. It's not so much a situation of they see that she's disabled, and so that's it. They can mark her off the list. It's like, no, they need to confirm that kill before they can move on to other people. So I feel like that's why this tug of war is happening. Okay, I'm okay with both reasonings. Another thing that I wonder about is the mechanic. How is he staying up on top of the rig? Yeah. He's got his torso and both of his arms over the side. I mean, really, the only answer is he is strapped in in some way. He is tied to that reinforcement in some way. But then again, the bad cop is successful in grabbing Virginia and pulling her down. And right after Virginia comes the mechanic. Yeah. So maybe he wasn't strapped in. In which case... Back to my question, how the heck was he staying up there? I don't know. Yeah, his participation in this activity could have been so much better if they had just sent his assistant instead of him. I'm inclined to agree with you, except for the fact that Virginia, their very best warrior, went out pretty quick. So I don't really hold out much hope for anybody else. Yeah. I mean, Max himself barely survives this ordeal. So putting somebody with the full use of their legs in that position, I'm not sure how much of a difference it would have made in the grand scheme of things. Maybe this moment would have gone different, but Bearclaw Mohawk, we see in this scene as well, is already up on top of the tanker. Yeah. Just a few feet away from the mechanic. Is it interesting that Bearclaw Mohawk does not help 
the bad cop with the whole tug of war thing? Well, my very first thought was that bad cop is of a different faction than Mohawk. We've seen Wes, a fellow Mohawker, be super duper helpful to Bearclaw. But no, 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 no. We've seen a bad cop be super helpful to Wes being a different faction. So yeah, I'm inclined to think that the different factions aren't necessarily always all lovey-dovey and maybe not always on the same side. Like maybe the Mohawkers are a bit more tribalistic, that they are loyal to their own first, where the bad cops are more open to helping people out. Right. There is the theory that the bad cops came from the MFP. So while they rape and pillage and maraud, perhaps it's ingrained in them to be helpful. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) To be team players. To be team players. Yeah. Yeah. Or Bearclaw Mohawk thought that the bad cop had the whole thing under control and he can start making his way towards the cab. Yeah. Which is probably what is true. Because really, the bad cop is in a fight with a paraplegic person and a corpse. Like, yeah, it's two against one, but one of those people are essentially dead and the other person doesn't have use of their legs. So the bad cop should have this well in hand. Which he does. Oh, yeah. It doesn't take much fighting or much effort at all to pull both of them down. And Max tries to help out. He tries to help the mechanic by just swerving a little bit and trying to knock that car away. But the vehicle, it's just too nimble. And as it comes back, that bad cop gets a hold of Virginia and gives her a good pull and both of them just slide right off the top of the tanker. Which leads to another quite disturbing visual in this minute of Virginia's dummy literally being pulled underneath the tires. Mm -hmm. And you saw something even more than I saw. When I slowed down this shot, and when I say this shot, I mean second 31 after the mechanic goes over the edge, you can see a very quick glimpse of the mechanic's dummy. The mechanic's dummy hits the ground first, interestingly enough. Virginia's dummy kind of gets caught on the wheel well, and so the bad cop has to push it down between the vehicles. As he pushes the dummy down between the vehicles, the foot of that dummy gets caught on the wheel well, and so as the body gets pulled away by the friction of the road, the leg gets torn off, and we're left with a disembodied leg hanging from the side of the wheel well. That is so awful. Mm-hmm. I am glad that I didn't see it. Yeah. Perhaps other casual viewers who are more eagle-eyed than I am, perhaps they see it in just watching the movie. But I think you'd have to really be analyzing the movie very minutely, as we do, Yeah. to be able to see that. Thank goodness. It's one of those things where if you're sitting there clicking through frame by frame and you're looking at everything on that screen, you might not notice it at first because it's just a white boot on a leg. But after you see it the first time, it's very hard to unsee it. Right. I've mentioned this car a couple of times, and I just want to do a quick thing from the Mad Max Movies Vehicles page. The red car here is an early 1970s XA Falcon, or it could also be a Fairmont Coupe. It would either be a 302 or a 351 V8 engine. So nice and powerful, able to keep up with the best of them. Comparable, not on the same exact level of the Interceptor, but still enough cylinders to keep pace easily with the tanker. Which we see very much by the end of this minute that Ford is out of control. 
being driven by, I think, the person in the back seat. And even when it's out of control, it's keeping up with the tanker. Exactly. Yeah. As the mannequins for the mechanic and warrior woman are sucked underneath the tires and are disappear, they are now gone from the movie. We get a quick shot of the feral child who is staring just agape at this display that he's been subjected to. That poor child has had quite a ride. Yeah. He has seen things and I hope. Okay. I never want a child to be traumatized by what they witness. But this child was told, no, you can't come. Yeah. <laughs> and he insisted. And now he's learning why. Yeah. I sincerely hope that he's realizing exactly why people didn't want him on that rig. Because folks are dying. Right. He didn't get to see Zeta torn off the back of the tanker. This is his first real exposure to the whole folks are dying type thing. Right. But he did see the grappling hook take the door off. Mm-hmm. He's getting exposed very much to the danger. And now that Virginia and the mechanic are out of the picture, that danger is heading up along the tanker towards the rig. So Max has been watching all of this, and as the Falcon is getting closer to the cab, we get another one of those really iconic shots from this movie. Max makes fantastic use of the door not being there. Mm-hmm. One of the troubling things about being in a cab like that is, yes, you're up high and what you can see, you can see very well, but there's a lot that you can't see. So that door being gone clears out some blind spot and also gives him physical maneuvering space. So he like half leans out the door and how he's steering right now, I do not know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But he finally gets to shoot a shotgun successfully. Yay, Max. Mm -hmm. I just love how he steps out and he really steps out. He puts his foot down. He's kind of standing on the side of the rig and he's probably got one hand on the steering wheel, the other one obviously out holding the shotgun. Right. And he leans so far out of that cab and just points his shotgun and fires. And And the next shot we see, if you're watching it just normal speed in the movie, you don't sit there and linger too long on this tableau before the shotgun shells hit the windscreen. But if you're clicking through it, it's very obvious that it's a mannequin. But that first impact goes right through the windshield. It explodes that dummy head that they had set up there. And then there's another shot that hits pretty much right next to that first impact. So he fired both barrels with this attack into that driver. Yes, he did. Making full use of the double trigger. I'm glad I got to see an example of that because back several minutes ago, I was a bit confused about the setup of a shotgun. So I'm glad I got to see the example of that. Mm -hmm. Although now I'm going to write in my notes that he has used two shells because Mm -hmm. he starts out with six, correct? That is correct. Okay. I think we might have one magic bullet. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Because I thought he only shot one here and then we see him shoot two uh, either tomorrow or Thursday. I can't remember which one. And then I think on Friday we see three shells spill out on the front of the rig. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's seven shells. Okay. I'm going to write that in my notes and I'll follow along as we go through the minutes. Okay. Because maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) Uh, I also want to point out an unusual phobia that actually has been getting a lot of 
pop culture call-outs as of late. Trypophobia. Oh, yeah. yeah, The fear of holes. Yeah, the fear of small clusters of holes. Yeah. Which is exactly what we get out of the second shell is there's like, I don't know, maybe six or seven little tiny holes in the windshield all clustered together. That would totally bother somebody who had trypophobia. Yeah, it's a weird one. Actually, I noticed that because I was watching the episode synopses for... American Horror Story cult today. Oh, yeah. And that's one of the phobias that she has. Yep. That's why it was like so fresh in my brain. So the feral child is sitting there and he sees Max blow this guy away. And his reaction to Max killing someone is very different from his reaction to the Raiders killing Warrior Woman and the mechanic. He is quite triumphant in his reaction. Yes, he is. Not really sure what I make of that. Not so much this reaction. I think I'm going back to his reaction from seeing the warrior woman and the mechanic sucked under the tires. Because the feral child has witnessed violent death before. Right, he caused one. He, yeah, and it did not bother him at all. In fact, when he killed the golden youth, he did a fun little backflip thing back into his hole. Mm-hmm. He celebrated So he's no stranger to violent death, and he's no stranger to his own people dying. So why did those deaths bother him? I'm willing to bet that it bothered him because of how, I'd say, isolated and unprotected they are on that rig. And sure, it's built up to be a rolling fortress, but it's not. No. In hindsight, they kind of didn't do a very good job. Yeah. Turning it into a fortress. For all the work they put into making the compound a fortress, sure. They probably did as much as they could, but... It wasn't enough. Yeah. Not even close. I mean, at present, there are two people? No. No, no, no. As of right now, there's still only one person on the rig. Mm -hmm. But very quickly, there's going to be four people on the rig without much of a fight at all. And something we noticed the other day and something that we're going to continue to notice is that these fortifications that are supposed to keep people off of the rig are actually helping people to get on the rig. Yes. So I think the feral child initially was worried at how vulnerable he suddenly is on that rig. But then seeing Max take out that driver, I'm willing to bet he was very celebratory because his hero, Max, took those guys out and was all heroic and stuff like that in dispatching this guy. So without a driver... This Red Falcon starts to slow down as the second bad cop, the one that was sticking out the window with the crossbow, leaps back into the car and tries to get control of it. As the red car is slowing down, a buggy comes around and gets in front of the red car and starts accelerating forward. And I don't know what it is about this movie with buggies getting in the way of larger cars. But as soon as that buggy gets in front of the Red Falcon, the bad cop regains control of the car and the Falcon accelerates right into the back of the buggy with enough force to slingshot that buggy forward. Now, buggies aren't the most solid vehicles, for sure. They're recreational and they're probably not built for high speeds. And so they lose control and go off the road and roll over. It's not nice for them. (laughs) They have a bit of a rough go at it. (laughs) And it serves them right for getting in front of the bigger cars. Well, to address that real quick, buggies are much more maneuverable than even this sports car. Especially the sports car that is not pressing on the accelerator at the moment. And I think this has been the problem before, where these highly maneuverable buggies somehow gain a speed advantage get in front, and then cut over because they can, and then all of a sudden they're in the way. (laughs) So I think it's their maneuverability. 
It it's, gets them into trouble. It's a blessing and a curse. Mm-hmm. One thing that you can throw in the curse column is their high center of gravity, which means that when they do get up those high speeds, if their wheel turns too far in one direction, that's how they roll over. Oh, they are constantly rolling over in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the second time we've seen a buggy go over in this chase sequence. Yeah, let alone the rest of the movie. Exactly. The scout buggy flips over, right? Mm-hmm. And the very original buggy flips over? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although, did the original buggy get rolled over? I think it just got smashed into the trailer. Okay. It's been a while been so since long. we saw that one. Anyway, so the buggy gets essentially thrown off the side of the road, and the red car starts pressing into the side of the tanker and bumping against it, and it's this whole thing. But we'll catch up with them tomorrow because a large chunk of this last, I'd say, 10 seconds of this minute are all about... One particular biker who is just riding alongside the tanker, and in the dust cloud that's thrown up by this buggy rolling over, he suddenly realizes that he's in the unfortunate position to head straight into this rolled over buggy. And if you look closely at this biker, he's got a black outlined orange box around his eyes as if it's painted on, but it's our old buddy guy Norris, Bear Claw Mohawk. So For this stunt, he was going to be on the motorcycle, ride headlong at the overturned buggy, and then as the motorcycle collides with the buggy, he was going to jump up off of the motorcycle over the buggy, sail off into this large landing area that they had built for him out of cushions and empty cardboard boxes and all of that stuff. It's a cannonball stunt. He'd done it a million times before when he was young in the carnival days and things like that, and it was supposed to be very simple. Right. However, on the day of the stunt, and this is something you see in the movie, when he leaps off that bike, he doesn't leap high enough, and his shins catch on the edge of that buggy, and it sends him hurtling end over end through the air. And what happened, according to the the behind-the-scenes documentary Road War, and I think they also mentioned this in the commentary, because of the nature of the car that he was jumping over, it was rocking. It wasn't sitting still. They were doing everything in motion. It was a lot of moving parts. And he just mistimed the jump or just didn't jump high enough. And so he broke one of his legs, which had already been broken before and had a metal pin inside. This collision that he suffered bent the metal pins in his leg. And so they had to scoop him up and bring him off to the hospital, get him cleaned up again. It's uh, one of the two bad accidents they had while doing stunts in this movie, where the first one was the moat jump with the four-pack car. Right. Where the leg was broken there. This is the second really bad one. So Guy Norris, he's got some important stuff coming up. Mm-hmm. So he, did he come right back? They brought him to the hospital. They cleaned him up. They put his leg in his cast. One thing that you'll probably notice about Bear Claw Mohawk is that he doesn't do a lot of acrobatic stuff for the whole rest of this movie. No, he does not. So when right. he's just hanging off the back of the cab, uh-huh. not doing a whole lot, you'll notice he's not doing any running or jumping or kicking or anything like that. All right. Good thing they already had the footage for him, like, climbing up onto the tanker, mm-hmm. walking across the top of the tanker. Lucky for that. So when a stuntman is also an actor, does he do his own stunts? Oh, absolutely. I think Guy Norris is primarily a stuntman, and the fact that Bear Claw Mohawk is featured so heavily is just how it worked out. Yeah, okay. I think Guy Norris would primarily call himself a stuntman, as opposed to he'd probably call them pretty boy actors. (laughs) (laughs) 
we get a very quick glimpse, less than a second's worth, of another biker, another mohawker that goes down as a result of this rolled over buggy. He gets off easy, though. He just crashes into the dirt and rolls a little bit. So he gets off rather light as far as stunts are concerned. Oh, that's a different person? Yep. I thought that was the flying through the air guy having hit the ground and like rolling to a stop. Nope, I can see how you'd think that. Okay. But, but just, it's a different person. Yeah, as who far also as crashed. where people are flying and how many were there, it's it's a different guy. He gets he gets off so easy by comparison. <laughs> so that pretty okay. much wraps us on minute eighty two. We'll come back tomorrow. We're gonna see the continuing saga of this red XA Falcon as it tries so desperately to salvage what they were doing. Come back for that. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 8 of the Road Warrior. We'll see you tomorrow.